We're going to be reading from verse 13 to verse 21. And I'll just make a couple of comments before we begin to read. One is, if you're um, visiting with us this morning, we're, we're working through Matthew uh, through the lens of Jesus' work of restoration. As he brings the kingdom of God, Jesus is beginning the work of restoring all things. Is what he says in Revelation he's doing. And we're looking at how Jesus brings restoration and then he invites his followers into the work of bringing that same restoration with him. He empowers them by his spirit. And I got to say, the Lord keeps surprising me. You know, we assigned ourselves these texts and gave titles to the sermon ahead of time. And, and yet when I go to the text, the Lord seems to be lifting up or highlighting something different than what I assigned to myself in the first place, which is a real fun process to go through. So we're going we're gonna to really focus on one thing this morning, but I'm going to stop after verse 13 and 14 and just make a couple of comments that felt important to me but didn't really fit into the flow of the message. So I just want to share that ahead of time. So beginning at verse 13. When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. What happened was that his cousin John was murdered. And so this had been a long time in coming, but it finally happened. And uh, this puts Jesus in a place of deep grief. He's just lost a, a, a cousin that he loves. And so Jesus seeks out a solitary place. And it says he did that by getting in a boat and going to the middle of a lake. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Just a couple of things I want us to notice. One, Jesus needed to get to the middle of a lake or out on a lake in order to be in a solitary place. Sometimes the need to be alone with God is so acute that we need to do something that looks a little bit desperate or a little bit crazy or to take a step that we might not otherwise take. I don't, we don't, I don't, think, I don't know about you, but I don't normally think about having quiet time out on a boat on a lake. Um, that sounds rather appealing, actually, but... but I, we don't normally do some, take a step like that, but in order for Jesus to get what he needed in that time, it meant getting out on a lake. And so he has this time alone with the Father, and he gets back, and immediately he sees crowds, and his compassion is aroused. And I think one of the things that, that I see in that is that there's a grace that God gives us to minister to others even before all our own hurt is sort of fully resolved. I imagine that as Jesus is with the Father, he has his heart tended to, he's strengthened, he's comforted, but I don't imagine all the grief is gone. I imagine the grief is still real and present. And yet, when he sees people and he sees their need, he has something from the Father to give. And I just think that's really instructive for us that we don't we that we need the space alone with God. We need to invite God to tend to our needs and to our heart, but we don't need to reach a place of completely 
healed or uh, fully, fully, I don't know how you define it, but God has the ability to, to use us even when we're feeling grief and weariness and a measure of brokenness. Let's carry on reading. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, This is a remote place and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so that they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Jesus replied, They do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. We have here only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Bring them here to me, he said. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass, taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven. He gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up twelve basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was about 5,000 men, besides or not counting women and children. When uh, my wife Anne and I were preparing to leave for missionary service in China in the fall of 2007, one of the things that we were preparing for was a last-minute visit to some supporting churches, but also to my family in Canada to say goodbye. And there was a bit of a hiccup in being able to make that visit because as we were preparing to leave, I was becoming a U.S. citizen. I had a green card and was now applying for citizenship, and that meant I couldn't leave the country until citizenship was granted. And when we first started applying, it looked like there should be plenty of time. It should be no problem. But the weeks and the months kept going by, and I started to get more and more nervous and more and more nervous. And finally, we made phone calls and found out some paperwork had gotten buried, and we had to make a last-minute trip to Detroit. And now we're getting very nervous because we're thinking, I not only have to get to Detroit and get a paper there, but I've got to have a uh, ceremony that for my citizenship, and I've got to get a paper that I can take to the passport office to be able to get the passport, and the passport takes time, and we're doing the math, and it's not working very well, and so we're praying, and we're anxious, and we're praying, and finally this piece of paper comes, and by the time the paper comes, I don't have time to go to submit a regular passport application because there's just not enough time to even turn around on an expedited one, and so our only option was to drive to Chicago to the only one-day passport location in the country, and we only had one day to do it. And so we drove to Chicago, praying and yet very anxious. And we got to Chicago. We got there a couple hours early. We lined up, and they opened, and they said, we're really sorry, folks. Our computer systems are down for the day. You need to, you need to go home. And we were like, we've got no option. Like, what do we do, you know? And so we just sat on the carpet for a few hours and they came out a few hours later and they said the computers are still down. You can go home. But we're thinking it's the last day before Christmas and we like this is it. Right. So we sat and we prayed and we're anxious more. And about three in the afternoon, somebody came up out and said, OK, the computer systems are aren't working, but we've got a few computers running. We're going to start hand processing some of your applications. We can't guarantee we're going to get through all of them. And so they started. And the long and the short of it is. 
by the very end of the day, I had a passport in my hand. And I was both thanking and praising the Lord, but I was also saying, oh, man, I spent a lot of emotional energy being anxious. And you provided. You provided. Again, why did I doubt your ability to provide, God? Have you ever had one of those moments where, where God provided and you said, why did I doubt all along your ability to provide? I should see every head nodding right now. Because I know that I've had many of those moments that usually they come a month or two apart or maybe, maybe sometimes a little more frequently. And each time I have one, I think, why did I doubt? Because you provided last time. And I, I should have told myself, I should have recalled your faithfulness, right? I shouldn't have been anxious. You all have that experience? Yeah. So the reality is that we don't just become anxious and run the risk of having these like dope moments where we forget. But fear and anxiety tend to lead to attempts to control. Fear and anxiety tend to lead to attempts to control or to take matters into our own hands and sometimes to produce an outcome for God instead of seeking his provision. So I want you to imagine with me what what the disciples would have missed if they had their way and if fear and anxiety and needing to manage the messiness of this situation that they were in had its way. I think it was a few months ago that I showed a video of this very clip from The Chosen, and we all got to experience together the, the joy, the hilarious joy that not only the crowd but the disciples had as they watched this miracle unfold and they got to participate in it. Now imagine if Jesus let them have their way. The text tells us that Jesus landed, he saw people, he had compassion, he began to heal. He just began to do what he saw the Father doing, and that was ministering to hurting people that needed healing. And time passes, and the disciples come to him, and they say, Jesus, this is a remote place, and it's getting late. Send the people away. Now, I want us to look closely and notice the disciples are making two observations that are right on. They're very true. They are in a remote place. There isn't food around. It's getting late. People don't have the means to go and get their own food. They're making correct deductions. But then they follow those observations and those directions, deductions by giving instructions to their rabbi. Who's your rabbi? Who are you following? That's not a rhetorical question. You're following the same rabbi that they're following. And they give instructions to him out of their fear and their anxiety. I can't say for sure, but I think this is how the situation unfolds. 
They see it is late. There isn't food. We've got 10, 15,000 people on our hands. And 15,000 people without food is a recipe for trouble. And so we're going to we're going to manage that. We've got a genuine need, but we're going to manage that in this way. We're going to send them all away. And so we're going to tell you, Jesus, this is how you should handle this situation. Now, before we look any further at what the disciples are doing, I want I want you to hear that I think the dynamics that are at work in this situation, I believe they're regularly at work in our lives, that we experience all the time situations in our homes, in our workplaces, in our schools, in our hearts and in our lives where we've got genuine needs and we become anxious and we become afraid. How is that going to get met? How is this going to go? What are we going to do? And in our fear and in our anxiety, I think the, sometimes the best case scenario is we try to tell God what to do. In prayer, I think at worst, we don't even go to God. We just try to handle it. If Jesus wasn't there, what would the disciples have done? They would have just sent him away. And I think that's often the case. It's often what we do in situations is we see genuine needs and we just jump in to handling them with the best that we know how, whatever the limited resources we have. And what Jesus models for us this morning is something entirely different. What Jesus models is keeping his eyes on what God the Father is doing and then confidently making space for God to provide for what he's doing. So why do I think Jesus is doing that? Because the first thing he says to the disciples is a, is a gentle rebuke. He says, they don't need to go away. They don't need to go away. Why do they not need to go away? Well, because Jesus says, I've always got my eyes on what the Father's doing. What is the Father doing? What are 10 to 15,000 people doing in the wilderness, away from their jobs, their gainful employment, their food, everything that would provide them sustenance? What are they doing? They're coming after Jesus. They're hungry. These are people that are hungry for the bread of life. They are hungry for the light of the world. They're hungry for what Jesus has to give. In other words, we've got a revival situation going on here. We've got the Spirit of God at work through Jesus ministering in word and in deed. And you've got people by the thousands coming after them. And Jesus is observing we've, the Father's working. The Father has drawn all these people out here. This isn't a crisis. This is a revival. You see the different eyes that he looks at it with? The disciples see it through the eyes, humanly speaking alone, of what's the need at the level of the stomach. Jesus sees what is the need at the level of the heart, of the spirit. These are people that God has drawn after me. They're here for me. Therefore, my Father, who has drawn them, will provide. And so he speaks and he acts out of that confidence. He makes space for God to provide. He says they don't need, they don't need to be sent away. 
before we look a little more closely at what he's doing, I want to give an example of what does this look like. You guys have heard me talk about Archer Torrey before, this like pioneer visionary who couldn't convince, unbelievably, couldn't convince the, North Korea, the South Koreans of the value of prayer in the 1960s. They now lead the church in prayer. And so he, he formed a community in the mountains of northern South Korea to pray. And as he formed that community, the Holy Spirit began drawing people from all over South Korea to come there. People began getting saved, born again, healed, delivered. Families are transformed. And God started changing the nation through this prayer community. Well, one winter, Archer tells a story. He's got a bunch of young people up there and then some uh, folks from the U.S. Army base that were fairly high up decided they were going to come and make a visit, and they're out there with a bunch of young people. It's packed out, and they get this massive winter storm, snows them all in for the better part of a week. They can't get out. They run out of food. They're down to their last bowl of kimchi, and they're saying, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And Archer prays, and he says, the Lord will provide. And they say, we need to eat. And he says, well, maybe the Lord's calling us to fast. And the U.S. military leaders, who are believers, are with him. They say, you're nuts. And they say, we're getting on the phone and we're calling in helicopters to come pick us up. Right? This is the disciples. And Archer says, okay, let's pray. They pray and the snow keeps coming. They run out of kimchi. And they wake up the next morning and there's a foot of snow on the front, a fresh foot of snow. And in that fresh foot of snow is a big bag of rice with no footprints leading away from it. Now, all Archer did was express confidence that the Father was working because the Father had drawn them all there. And if the Father was working, the Father would provide. Archer didn't work the miracle. He just expressed the confidence that God would provide and he created space for that. If he had participated with the thinking of these generals, let's call in the copters. He's not leaving space for God to provide. Okay, so what I want us to see is that Archer's operating in this moment from a renewed mind, from the mind of Christ that confidently makes space for the Father's provision. And that this this is the restoration that I, it's one of them that I believe Jesus is bringing in this moment, modeling for his disciples and wanting us to learn. And that's the restoration of the mind. What does it look like to live as a son or a daughter of God? All the time. Is to see with his eyes and to trust his faithfulness. Because Jesus has that confidence, he's able to shock his disciples by saying to them, you give them something to eat. You give them something to eat. What? We've only got five loaves and two fish. 
And you probably already knew that, Jesus. Like, we're looking at the same stuff as you. What are you thinking? This doesn't add up. This doesn't make sense. Jesus is thinking, whatever you have is enough when you're working with the Father. Bring it here. Whatever you have is enough when you're working with the Father. Whatever it is. And so Jesus focuses, instead of focusing on what they don't have, he takes what they have and he says, thank you, Father. Thank you for this that you've given. This is enough. Thank you. And he says, begin, begin to give it. And as he thanks for what they have and commands them to give it, he's again, I want you to see. You could say Jesus is working the miracle. Or you could say he's creating the space and the spirit or the father are working the miracle. Maybe both. But I think the part I want us to notice is he's making space. He's trusting that the provision will come. He's trusting that what's there is enough. And as he takes that step of faith and he trusts this creative miracle unfolds in front of them. And it's a creative miracle that again, they would have missed if they'd followed the disciples' uh, train of thinking. So another way of saying the restoration that Jesus wants to bring is this. He wants to, he wants to bring about the shift from an orphan mentality to a, a mentality of sonship. An orphan says, I've got to provide for myself. I am alone in this world. I must meet my needs. A son or a daughter says, I have a good father. My father watches over me. My father takes care of me. My father knows my needs. My father will provide. I can ask with confidence for my father to provide. And he will. With God, there's always provision And there's always enough, no matter what it seems like. As I prayed and asked the Lord about what he was wanting to do in our congregation, in our hearts, through this text, I just really had the sense that he was saying, I want to help you grow in viewing everything, everything, through a a redeemed mind, through the mind of Christ. And I had the sense that the Lord was saying, this is sort of a, a direct quote from the Lord, don't bring me your assumptions and solutions. Don't bring me your assumptions and solutions. Bring me your observations, your questions, and your faith. This is the sweet spot for me to work creative miracles through you. Let me me close with a story that illustrates this. Um, some of you know that I love missionary biographies. They just really nourish the soul and uh, help uh, picture a vital, faithful walk with Jesus. And I just finished one that I cannot recommend highly enough. It's by Darlene Diebler, and it's called Evidence, Evidence Not Seen. Thank you, Anne. Darlene was a missionary in, during World War II in 
Indonesia, um, which is pretty close to my heart because that's my Oma lived through um, seven Japanese prisoner of war camps in Indonesia in World War II. So <clears throat> this takes place on the very front end of, of World War II. The Japanese shock troops are moving through the islands, and they have not reached the island that she's on. The bishop of their group of missionaries calls all the missionaries together and shares with the missionaries, okay, I've just been informed that there's a Dutch passenger ship that's going to stop here tomorrow and has room for all of us to be able to safely have passage away ahead of the Japanese. Uh, What I would like for each of you to do is get alone with God and ask God, don't make assumptions, but ask him, do you want me or us to get on that ship? And husbands and wives, I want you to do this separately. God will give you the same answer. You need to seek him yourself. And so this large group of people all went off on their own, and they all sought the Lord. And he said, you know, you don't have to feel guilt if you're leaving, uh, nor if you're staying. You just need to hear from the Lord. It matters to hear from him. And uh, because you, you'll have to live by that decision down the road. So they, they went away, and they came back together, and they were totally shocked to find out that the Lord had said to every single one of them, stay. And they didn't understand it. But they all obeyed him. And three days later, they heard the ship that they would have gone on was torpedoed. And all of, all of them would have died. So here's a, a different form of a creative miracle, of provision that comes as we bring God our observations. Father, war is starting. I'm scared. There's a ship that's coming. Should I get on it? Are you calling me to leave? And God gives provision that spares the life. So what I'm wanting us to hear, it's, it's a little bit different than the text, but what I'm wanting us to hear is this process of having needs. And remember, when fear and anxiety are present, we often try to manage them. Instead of trying to manage them, taking things to the Lord, asking him what guidance does he give, and that gives space for him to work creatively to provide to take care. And also, like in the text, um, to do things like a creative miracle that just brings great, great glory to the Lord. So let me close there, and I want to pray for us, but also we're going to sing. As I was writing this sermon, I just kept thinking of a hymn that I sang as a child. It's called, May the Mind of Christ My Savior. Some of you might remember that. It's from the old Psalter hymnal, the gray Psalter hymnal. And I'd like to sing that as a prayer, that the Lord would really... Um, continue to grow the mind of Christ within us, that we could walk in the same faith um, as individuals, but also as a congregation, that as we face situations, we don't try to manage them. We don't get afraid or anxious. We just say, Lord, what are you doing? And we create space for him. So let's pray. Father, we thank you that, that um, what you give to us, the inheritance we have in Christ, is so beyond uh, what we deserve, but also what we can even fathom. 
that you want and desire each one of us to live with the same confidence of heart, peace of mind, faith as your own son, Jesus. And in fact, you call us to keep growing and giving room for your spirit to grow us until we reach that measure of maturity that is Christ. And so, Holy Spirit, we're inviting you now and in the days to come. Would you continue to mature us? Would you continue to grow the mind of Christ within us so that we engage the, the, the various situations and relationships and opportunities that are in front of us through the mind of Christ? And you get great, great glory You work creatively, even through us, like you did through Jesus. We pray this, Lord, in your precious name. Amen.